From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Michael Shapiro joins us to talk about the microbiota, and Lulin Wang discusses the Zika virus. So stay tuned right here on the Grok Science Show. Welcome back to the program. Well, scientists have known for a while that the gut in our bodies hosts trillions of bacteria and other microorganisms. But what role do they play? Well, increasingly we find that they play many important roles, including fertility, development, metabolism, and immunity. But how has the gut evolved over time? Well, joining us today is our very special guest, uh, Professor Michael Shapira from the University of California, Berkeley, who will tell us a little bit about the biota or the microbiota and how it has evolved with humans. Uh, Professor Shapira, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. But how has the gut evolved over time? So the, the microbiota that I'm talking about is the community of uh, microbes that live within us or on us. It is a community separate from us, but uh, we are going through this life uh, together. So every animal and plant as well, they have their own microbiota that could be more diverse or less diverse, but they're within them or on them all the time. In humans, how many type of these bacteria reside in our stomach? Well, if I remember the numbers correctly, uh, first of all, we're talking about uh, the number is uh, overall is 10 to the 14th. Uh, I think it was corrected recently to perhaps 10 to the 13th, but regardless, it's a huge number. Right. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, about 1,000 different species per individual in humans, in other animals, it, the difference, uh, there are different numbers. I can't repeat them all. <laughs> Huge the, numbers. In your own work, you've been looking at the evolution of the biota uh, in insects and other creatures. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your work? So we looked at uh, the microbiota of a, a worm, a nematode, that is a very popular genetic model. Uh, it's called the Sonorabiditis elegans, or C. elegans for short. And it's a very popular genetic model, so it's the, the contribution of different genes. Some of them are conserved all the way to humans, to biology. But for a long, long while, we didn't know anything about its microbiota. We've been growing it in the lab on a convenient food source, which is a bacteria called E. coli. Probably people heard about that. It's a workhorse of all microbiology. Very easy to work with, uh, but not colonizing the worms. Now, these worms are bacteriovore. They eat bacteria in nature. Uh, they live in uh, conjunction with rotten fruit uh, on soils, like in apple orchards. This is where you, are, you would isolate them from. And so you would think that they would uh, interact with many more uh, microbes and perhaps hold, hold their own uh, microbiota, but we didn't know anything about it. So what we do is to fill in this gap and to um, grow worms in soil with rotten fruit and uh, then characterize their microbiota. 
And uh, we did that. That uh, work was published recently. But then it gets you to think about other things beyond uh, the specific microbiota of C. elegans. What we found was that the assembly of the microbiota was pretty much a deterministic process uh, affected by uh, host factors, to some extent at least, not just by the environmental diversity. So you could start with different um, microbiota in the environment, but still uh, worms are reproducibly assembled and microbiota that was characteristically theirs and was distinct from those in their environment. And how long does it take for us to observe the changes in the biota? So I don't see changes. What we do is we, we take um, germ-free worms and we add them uh, to soil with the rotten fruit, uh-huh. let them uh, mature there. And when they are adults, uh, reproductive adults, we harvest them uh, from the soil and we um, characterize the microbiota both in their soil environment and inside the, the worms after we washed them extensively from the outside, surface sterilizing them and all that, we get the, the bacteria from the inside and we see what they are. And that's how we saw that they, they were not changing, they were just assembling into uh, a microbiota that was distinct from the environment. And other research groups have also tried to characterize the microbial communities in different species, uh, different insects. Uh, could you tell us if these microbiota are similar to the ones that you've observed? Yeah, in many species you could see that there is a characteristic core microbiota of the species. In other species, mostly invertebrates, uh, this seems to be more complex. The numbers are, are larger, the, are, and, the, and, the, and the diversity of the microbiota is, is, is also much larger. And uh, there you start seeing inter-individual um, variation. So every individual seems to have something that is uh, a microbiota that is pretty distinct. And it's hard to figure out if there is a core microbiota uh, or that it's completely dependent on the environment. So with our system, because we are working with populations of worms that we can control their genetics, so they are genetically homogeneous, we kind of uh, uh, remove some of the uncontrolled factors and we can discern better patterns. And when we did that, um, and, and you can do that with other simple organisms or to, to this or that extent, uh, but when you do that, uh, you can... Uh, completely dismiss the inter-individual variation. It does not exist, and you see patterns. You can identify core microbiota, and you can see the characteristic core microbiota, and that was kind of an advantage of using that system. So your research has broad implications for human health and also how insects and other bugs work in the environment. Uh, I'm just curious here, what was the inspiration behind your work? Well, this particular research came from our previous interest in uh, immunity, actually, in, in host pathogen interaction. And we've been using C. elegans to understand the mechanism of innate immunity. They, they do share, to some extent, with the higher organisms, but I quickly realized that uh, we probably miss a lot by not considering that the microbiota, natural microbiota of C. elegans, that, that context uh, in which it evolved, all these mechanisms evolved. So I wanted to fill in this gap of uh, knowing what is the microbiota of C. elegans, and that's why we started on that project. And what you know, what kind of new research questions does this open up? Well, you start thinking about this deterministic uh, feature, right? I mean, if the microbiota is uh, assembled always to something very similar, then and we know that. Uh, many of the species that are the common cells in that that are part of this microbiota have various contributions to their host. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder to imagine that this is just a stochastic process, a random process that of a species would have a different microbiota. So you would think that there is, uh, should be some kind of selective uh, 
selection pressure to to select for features that allow the assembly of a particular microbiota that is say, more beneficial for the host, the individuals that will have advantages over their peers. And that would be, the, in essence, a process of uh, natural selection. And at the end of which, you would expect to see characteristic species, characteristic uh, microbiota, and some interest in maintaining those uh, microbiota. This is what started me thinking about what it could, if and, and if we have any evidence that would suggest that uh, the microbiota play a role in the evolution of the host, which is, it is not quite clear these days still, but uh, I thought we had some evidence uh, discussing that and thinking about that. And does this mean that evolution can be directed if the process is not stochastic? Well, I'm suggesting that there is a selection to allow the host to shape to some extent its microbiota. It's mm-hmm. probably not the, the only thing. Environmental conditions seem to do that too. But I focused on that contribution of natural selection that will select for features in the host that will shape its microbiota. So I've been interested in the science of microbiota for a while. I've heard from different uh, sources that probiotics like yogurt or fermented foods can enhance the function of your gut uh, and presumably lessen the effects of of allergies. Uh, You know, what what are your thoughts on the claims of the uh, probiotics industry? I think that they are not likely to be bad. The the study of uh, the percentage of fermented goods to lifespan is is an old uh, story that uh, Ilya Mechnikov, I think, one of the pioneers of uh, microbiology, started the thinking about and and it does seem to be good for your health. Whether the yogurt changes uh, significantly the the gut microbiota of uh, of adults by eating yogurt, for example, Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there's some research suggesting that it doesn't uh, really change much the microbiota. It seems to be changing other things in the intestines, so maybe those are good for you. But whether it changes the microbiota itself, uh, it seems not to do that. So uh, the jury is still out as to how fermented goods are good for you. Uh, they right. seem to be good for you. And how about antibiotics? Do they have an adverse effect on your gut? Yeah, that, that's that's pretty sure that they do, yes. Uh, they will change the microbiota uh, for a prolonged time, um, depending on the, the age of the individual. It might be for a longer or shorter time. And, and uh, if you consider the the, the more and more um, evidence that we have for the importance of those gut microbes for our health, then uh, not having some of them could be detrimental, yes. So antibiotics would be detrimental for our gut microbiota. So I guess it's a, it's a balance between what you gain by using it and what you lose, which right. you, do. you lose right. some. Great. Well, thanks for giving us an overview on the science of the gut. Uh, are there any last words you'd like to add about yourself or your work? Well, I, I would just add that this is, you know, an exciting field to to play a part in, and it's exciting uh, um, both for your own uh, contributions, for our, our contributions, but uh, to try to put together the various contributions that many people have uh, is an exciting uh, thing all by itself. And the review that uh, I wrote recently about the hologenome uh, theory is, is is something that addresses one of those exciting ideas uh, that was coming out in 2008 and people discuss it and some parts of it are likely correct and some parts of it will likely be modified um, but it's an exciting uh, period to do science in. Uh, Professor Shapiro, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you.
and we were just talking to Professor Michael Shapira from the Molecular and Cell Biology Division at UC Berkeley. We were discussing the science of microbiota, the community of microbes in guts. In a few moments, we'll be joined by Lulun Wang to talk about the Zika virus. So stay right here. Welcome back to the program. In recent months, there have been outbreaks of the Zika virus in communities in American nations and Pacific Islands. Well, joining us right now is Lulun Wang from the UCLA's Department of Molecular Biology, and he'll tell us how this unknown pathogen became a global epidemic. Uh, Lulun, thank you so much for joining us here today. Hi, Frank. Hi. So what exactly is the Zika virus, and what do we know about where it came from? Well, um, the virus has been been around for nearly 60 years or so, but has never really been populated in among people. It's been mostly found in, in the mosquitoes through routine checkups. And then um, it was recently that thing through an outbreak in Brazil, uh, right now mostly in the South America. A lot of people were infected. And in fact, that um, the fact that it is able to cause formation of microcephaly is really a huge, huge deal. Now we have seen even more uh, the fact that the virus is able to transmit sexually has never been found before in the virus. And in addition to that, you know, the virus, we would think that the virus is much more valuable in terms of how it's going to affect the neural development of the children. So you mentioned that it's been around for at least 60 years, but usually hasn't been a, a problem. And is it because of the recent mutations the outbreaks have occurred? Yeah, we think that uh, mutations definitely is favorable to um, adapt to human beings. And obviously, um, they're spreading really rapidly right now. But in addition to that, because of the, at this point, the, the level of transportation and movement between human beings from one place to another is also huge. Um, one of the arguments that earlier reports have been shown is that because of the World Cup that was hosting Brazil a couple of years ago is one of the reasons why, you know, all those people from different parts of the world actually came to Brazil. And that could be a huge um, reason why where the reservoir of the virus can really, really get spread around. And know, as we all know, the Olympics will take place in Rio this year. Do you believe that could be another, uh, you know, event that, that could accelerate the uh, spread of this virus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... I mean, although in adults, um, it's not going to cost too much. Really, it's one-third or to one-fifth of adults really is going to be experiencing a common cold-like symptom, whereas most people are not going to, are going to be asymptomatic. Uh, whereas I think the most problematic group of people are pregnant women. Uh, if they attend or go to Brazil, then, of course, um, there could be a good chance of getting infected by 
you know, a number of different viruses, including Zika, through um, mosquito transmission. And in your research, you've shown that the the virus mutates rapidly. You know, is there any particularly special about the way they they mutate? It didn't seem to be. It seems random mutation that have occurred over the years. It's interesting in a way that um, in the past, the documentation has never been related to cases of microcephaly or even Guillain-Barré diseases. So we really think that those mutations could could partially be um, further uh, raised questions if they're responsible for uh, those pathogenicities. However, yeah, we don't think that there's a specific location of mutation that continuously happens. We think it's a gradual buildup of mutations over time. But definitely between the African lineages and Asian lineages, there's a huge distinction of, of, of sequence. So there are more than two types of Zika viruses. So far, I think the isolation is around, uh, the total reported isolated um, sequences are around 60, if I'm not mistaken, around 50 to 60. That's the range we have to work with. Whereas a lot of the viruses in the world, we have, you know, for example, dengue virus, we have over 10,000 sequences. Influenza, we have even more. You know, just 50 sequences, there's very limited amount of, amount of analysis we can do. But with more sequences coming into the data bank, then hopefully we can do more vigorous analysis and really figure out if molecular biology can sort of pinpoint you know, the location of mutation that causes the pathogenesis. Where was the very first case of a serious outbreak prior to Rio or the Brazil? I mean, prior to Rio, I think because of the lack of documentation, um, the first actual human case of Asian strain outbreak, we think that it's located in Micronesia. It's one of the Asian Pacific Islands. And then that is occurred in 2007. And in 2012, there is an outbreak in French Polynesia. So earlier in the, in the earlier um, study, they never actually associated microcephaly with the disease outbreak. However, the group actually went back to study those cases, and they actually found that there is indeed microcephaly cases even in the earlier uh, Zika outbreak in 2012. So I think that's sort of the earliest uh, outbreak. And with the limited data we have so far, is it possible to predict where the next outbreak or the type of strain that we should be looking out for? Right now, with the amount of data we have, it's very hard to predict exactly where the next target would be. Hopefully, as the South Americans are getting cooler and the, um, the amount of mosquitoes would decrease and therefore the disease would go away a little bit more. In terms of the strain, it is, again, very hard to predict. We think that the current strain of the Asian lineage that is currently ongoing is quite stable. Uh, we think that the, the single strain can infect multiple organs, that is including that able to infect testes and infect you know, different parts of the body and also able to um, transmit into the, um, the brain of the developing baby. So it, it seems to be, at this point, quite stable. Over the past couple next couple of years, we don't think that there's going to be a major change. But um, definitely people have to be very cautious about it still. Great. I think that gives us some insights into uh, the Zika virus and where it might be going to. Alunan, thank you so much for joining us here on Grox today. Okay, no problem. Thanks. All right. And we were just talking to Lunan Wang from the Department of Molecular Biology at UCLA. We're discussing the evolution of the Zika virus.
And that's all for this week's edition of the Rock Science Show. Make sure you tune in again next week for more from the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. In the meantime, you can check us up on the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Franklin. Stay tuned here for more music. Da, da, da.